Section two of The Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter three. The girl who was indifferent. A heavy weight lay on Jack Beardmore's mind as he walked slowly across the meadows that morning. His feet carried him instinctively in the direction of the little valley which lay a mile from the house and in the exact centre of which ran the hedge which marked the division between the Beardmore and Froyant estates. It was a glorious morning. The storm of wind and rain which had swept the country the night before had blown itself out, and the world lay bathed in yellow sunlight. Far away, beyond the olive-green commons that crowned Penton Hill, he caught a glimpse of Harvey Froyant's big white mansion. Would she venture out, with the ground so sodden and the grasses soaked with rain, he wondered. He stopped by a big elm-tree on the lip of the valley, and cast an anxious glance along the untidy hedge, until his eyes rested on a tiny summer-house which the former owners of the tower-house had erected. Harvey Froyant, who loathed solitude, would never have been guilty of such extravagance. There was nobody in sight, and his heart sank. Ten minutes' walking brought him to the gap he had made in the fence, and he stepped through. The girl who sat in the tiny house might have heard his sigh of relief. She looked round, then rose with some evidence of reluctance. She was remarkably pretty, with her fair hair and flawless skin, but there was no welcome in her eyes as she came slowly toward him. "'Good morning,' she said coolly. "'Good morning, Thalia,' he ventured, and her frown returned. "'I wish you wouldn't,' she said, and he knew that she meant what she said. Her attitude toward him puzzled and worried him, for she was a thing of laughter and bubbling life. He had once surprised her chasing a hare, and had watched, spellbound, the figure of this laughing Diana as her little feet flew across the field in pursuit of the scared beast. He had heard her singing, too, and the very joy of life was vibrant in her voice. But he had seen her so depressed and gloomy that he had feared she was ill. "'Why are you always so stiff and formal with me?' he grumbled. For a second the ghost of a smile showed at the corner of her mouth. "'Because I've read books,' she said solemnly. "'And poor girl secretaries, who aren't stiff and formal, with millionaire sons, usually come to a bad end.' She had a trick of directness which was very disconcerting. "'Besides,' she said, "'there is no reason why I shouldn't be stiff and formal.' It is the conventional attitude which people adopt toward their fellow creatures, unless they are very fond of them, and I'm not very fond of you. She said this calmly and deliberately, and the young man's face went red. He felt a fool, and cursed himself for provoking this act of cruelty. "'I will tell you something, Mr. Beardmore,' she went on, in her even tone. "'Something which you haven't realized.' When a boy and girl are thrown together on a desert island, it is only natural that the boy gets the idea that the girl is the only girl in the world. All his wayward fancies are concentrated on one woman, and as the days pass, she grows more and more wonderful in his eyes. I've read a lot of these desert island stories, and I've seen a lot of pictures that deal with that interesting situation, and that is how it strikes me. You are on a desert island here, you spend too much time on your estate, and the only things you see 
or rabbits and birds and Thalia Drummond. You should go into the city and into the society of people of your own station. She turned from him with a nod, for she had seen her employer approaching, had watched him out of the corner of her eye as he stopped to survey them, and had guessed his annoyance. "'I thought you were doing the house accounts, Miss Drummond,' he said with asperity. He was a skinny man in the early fifties, colourless, sharp-featured, prematurely bald. He had an unpleasant habit of baring his long yellow teeth when he asked a question, a grimace which in some curious way suggested his belief that the answer would be an evasion. "'Morning, Beardmore,' he jerked the salutation grudgingly, and turned again to his secretary. "'I don't like to see you wasting your time, Miss Drummond,' he said. "'I am not wasting either your time or mine, Mr. Froyant,' she answered calmly. "'I have finished the accounts. Here.' She tapped the worn leather portfolio which was under her arm. "'You could have done the work in my library,' he complained. "'There is no need to go into the wilderness.' He stopped and rubbed his long nose, and glanced from the girl to the silent young man. "'Very good. That will do,' he said. "'I'm going to see your father, Beardmore. Perhaps you'll walk with me.' Thalia was already on her way to Tower House, and Jack had no excuse for lingering. "'Don't occupy that girl's time, Beardmore. Don't, please,' said Froyan testily. "'You've no idea how much she has to do, and I'm sure your father wouldn't like it.' Jack was on the point of saying something offensive, but checked himself. He loathed Harvey Froyant, and at the moment hated him for his domineering attitude toward the girl. "'That class of girl,' began Mr. Froyant, turning to walk by the side of the hedge toward the gate at the end of the valley. "'That class of girl?' He stood still and stared. "'Who the devil has broken through the hedge?' he demanded, pointing with his stick. "'I did,' said Jack, savagely. "'It's our hedge, anyway, and it saves half a mile. Come on, Mr. Froyant.' Harvey Froyant made no comment as he stepped gingerly through the hedge. They walked slowly up the hill toward the big elm tree where Jack had stood looking down into the valley. Mr. Harvey Froyant preserved a tight-lipped silence. He was a stickler for the conventions, where their observations benefited himself. They had reached the crests of the rise, when suddenly his arm was gripped, and he turned to see Jack Beardmore staring at the bowl of the tree. Froyant followed the direction of his eye, and took a step backward, his unhealthy face a shade paler. Painted on the tree trunk was a rough circle of crimson, and the paint was yet wet. Chapter 4 Mr. Felix Marl Jack Beardmore looked round, scanning the country. The only human being in sight was a man who was walking slowly away from them, carrying a bag in his hand. Jack shouted, and the man turned. "'Who are you?' demanded Jack. Then, "'What are you doing here?' The stranger was a tall, stoutish man, and the exertion of carrying his grip had left him a little breathless. It was some time before he could reply. "'My name is Marl,' he said. "'Felix Marl. You may have heard of me.' "'I think you are young Mr. Beardmore, aren't you?' "'That is my name,' said Jack. "'What are you doing here?' he asked again. "'They told me there was a shortcut from the railway station. 
"'But it is not so short as they promised,' said Mr. Marl, breathing stertorously. "'I'm on my way to see your father.' "'Have you been near that tree?' asked Jack, and Marl glared at him. "'Why should I go near any tree?' he demanded aggressively. "'I tell you, I've come straight across the fields.' By this time Harvey Froyant arrived, and apparently recognised the newcomer. "'This is Mr. Marl. I know him. Marl, did you see anybody near that tree?' The man shook his head. Apparently the tree and its secret was a mystery to him. "'I never knew there was a tree there,' he said. "'What... what has happened?' "'Nothing,' said Harvey Froyant sharply. They came to the house soon after, Jack carrying the visitor's bag. He was not impressed by the big man's appearance. His voice was coarse, his manner familiar, and Jack wondered what association this uncouth specimen of humanity could have with his father. They were nearing the house when suddenly, and for no obvious reason, the stout Mr. Marl emitted a frightened squeal and leapt back. There was no doubt of his fear. It was written visibly in the blanched cheeks and the quivering lips of the man, who was shaking from head to foot. Jack could only look at him in astonishment, and even Harvey Froyant was startled into an interest. "'What the hell's wrong with you, Marl?' he asked savagely. His own nerves were on edge, and the sight of the big man's undisguised terror was a further strain which he could scarcely endure. "'Nothing, nothing,' muttered Marl huskily. "'I've been... drinking, I should think,' snapped Froyant. After seeing the man into the house, Jack hurried off in search of Derek Yale. He discovered the detective in the shrubbery, sitting in a big cane chair, his chin upon his breast, his arms folded, a characteristic attitude of his. Yale looked up at the sound of the young man's footsteps. "'I can't tell you,' he said, before Jack had framed his question. And then, seeing the look of astonishment on his face, he laughed. "'You were going to ask me what scared Marl, weren't you?' "'I came with that intention,' laughed Jack. "'What an extraordinary fellow you are, Mr. Yale. "'Did you see his extraordinary exhibition of funk?' Derek Yale nodded. "'I saw him just before he had his shock,' he said. "'You can see the field path from here.' He frowned. "'He reminds me of somebody,' he said slowly. "'Yet I cannot for the life of me tell who it is.' "'Is he a frequent visitor here?' Your father told me he was coming, and I guessed it was he. Jack shook his head. This is the first time I've seen him, he said. I remember now, though, that father and Froyant have had some business dealings with a man named Marl. Dad mentioned him one day. I think he's a land speculator. Father is rather interested in land just now. By the way, I've seen the mark of the Crimson Circle, he added, and described the newly painted O he had found on the elm. Instantly, Yale lost interest in Mr. Marl. It was not on the tree when I went down into the valley, said Jack. I'll swear to that. It must have been painted whilst I was talking to... to a friend. The trunk is out of sight from the boundary fence, and it was quite possible for somebody to have painted the sign without being seen. What does it mean, Mr. Yale? It means trouble, said Yale shortly. He rose abruptly and began pacing the flagged walk, and Jack, after waiting a little while, left him to his meditations. In the meantime, Mr. Felix Marl was comparatively a useless third of a conference 
which dealt with the transfer of lands. Marl was, as Jack had said, a land speculator, and he had come that morning bringing a promising proposition which he was wholly incapable of explaining. "'I can't help it, gentlemen,' he said, and for the fourth time his trembling hand rose to his lips. "'I've had a bit of a shock this morning.' "'What was that?' but Marl seemed incapable of explanation. He could only shake his head helplessly. "'I'm not fit to discuss things calmly,' he said. "'You'll have to put the matter off until tomorrow.' "'Do you think I've come here today for the purpose of listening to that sort of nonsense?' snarled Mr. Froyant. "'I tell you I want this business settled. So do you, Beardmore.' Jim Beardmore, who was indifferent as to whether the matter was settled then or the following week, laughed. "'I don't know that it is very important,' he said. "'If Mr. Marl is upset, why should we bother him? Perhaps you'll stay here tonight, Marl.' "'No, no, no!' the man's voice rose almost to a shout. "'No, I won't stay here, if you don't mind. I would much rather not.' "'Just as you like,' said Jim Beardmore indifferently and folded up the papers he had prepared for signature. They walked out into the hall together, and there Jack found them. Beardmore's car carried the visitor and his bag back to the station, and from there on Mr. Marl's conduct was peculiar. He registered his bag through to the city, but he himself descended at the next station, and for a man who so disliked walking, and as by nature so averse from physical exercise, he displayed an almost heroic spirit, for he set forth to walk the nine miles which separated him from the Beardmore estate, and he did not go by the shortest route. It was nearing nightfall when Mr. Marl made his furtive way into a thick plantation on the edge of the Beardmore property. He sat down, a tired, dusty, but determined man, and waited for the night to close down of the countryside. And during the period of waiting, he examined with tender care the heavy automatic pistol he had taken from his bag in the train. Chapter 5 The Girl Who Ran "'I can't understand why that fellow hasn't come back this morning,' said Jim Beardmore with a frown. "'Which fellow?' asked Jack carelessly. "'I'm speaking of Marl,' said his father. "'Was that the large-sized gentleman I saw yesterday?' asked Derrick Yale. They were standing on the terrace of the house, which, from its elevated position, gave them a view across the country. The morning train had come and gone. They could see the trail of white smoke it left as it disappeared into the foothills nine miles away. Yes, I'd better phone Froyant and tell him not to come over. Jim Beardmore stroked his stubbly chin. Marl puzzles me, he said. He's a brilliant fellow, I believe. A reformed thief, I know. At least, I hope he is reformed. What upset him yesterday, Jack? He came into the library looking like death. I haven't the slightest idea, said Jack. I think he has a weak heart, or something of the sort. He told me he gets these spasms occasionally. Beardmore laughed softly, and, going into the house, returned with a walking stick. I'm going for a stroll, Jack. No, you needn't come along. I've one or two things I wish to think out, and I promise you, Yale, I won't leave the grounds, though I think you attach too much importance to the threats of these ruffians. 
Yale shook his head. "'What of the sign on the tree?' he asked. Jim Beardmore snorted contemptuously. "'It will take more than that to extract a hundred thousand from me,' he said. He waved a farewell at them as he went down the broad stone steps, and they watched him walking slowly across the park. "'Do you really think my father is in any kind of danger?' asked Jack. Yale, who had been staring after the figure, turned with a start. "'In danger?' he repeated, and then, after a second's hesitation, "'Yes, I believe there is very serious danger for him in the next day or two. Jack turned his troubled gaze upon the disappearing figure. "'I hope you're wrong,' he said. "'Father doesn't seem to take the matter as seriously as you.' "'That is because your father has not the same experience,' said the detective. "'But I understand that he saw Chief Inspector Parr, and the inspector thought there was considerable danger.' Jack chuckled in spite of his fears. "'How do the lion and the lamb amalgamate?' he asked. "'I didn't think that headquarters had much use for private men like you, Mr. Yale.' "'I admire Parr,' said Derrick slowly. "'He's slow, but thorough.' I am told that he is one of the most conscientious men at headquarters, and I fancy that the headquarters chiefs have cheated him badly over the last Crimson Circle crime. They have practically told him that if he cannot run the organization to earth, he must send in his resignation. Whilst they were speaking, the figure of Mr. Beardmore had disappeared into the gloom of a little wood on the edge of the estate. I worked with him during the last circle murder, Derek Yale went on, and he struck me. He stopped, and the two men looked at one another. There was no mistaking the sound. It was a shot near and distinct, and it came from the direction of the wood. In an instant, Jack had leapt over the balustrade and was racing across the meadow, Derek Yale behind him. Twenty paces along the woodland path, they found Jim Beardmore lying on his face, and he was quite dead and even as Jack was staring down at his father with horrified eyes, a girl emerged from the wood at the farther end, and stopped only long enough to wipe with a handful of grass something that was red from her hands, and she flew along the shadow of the hedge which divided the Froyant estate. Never once did Thalia Drummond look back until she reached the shelter of the little summer-house. Her face was drawn and white, and her breath came gaspingly as she stood for a second in the doorway of the little hut and looked back to the wood. A swift glance round, and she was in the house, and on her knees, tugging with quivering hands at the end of a floorboard. It came up, disclosing a black cavity. Another second's hesitation, and she threw into the hole the revolver she had held in her hand, and dropped the board back in its place. End of Section 2